Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. We're delighted to say this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Brewing Folk. Brewing Folk celebrates all the people who visit Verdant Brewing Co. and its taproom. White Rabbit will be collaborating with Verdant this year, and we can highly recommend their beers. Find out more at brewingfolk.co or order yourself something to drink from verdantbrewing.co. So here's my quick book recommendation for the beginning of this week's songbook episode. The brilliantly named Bass Mids Tops, an oral history of British sound system culture by Joe Muggs, with photographs by Brian David Stevens. A full disclosure, I got to know Joe when I was reviews editor at the wonderful Word magazine in the mid-2000s, when he kept emailing to suggest great ideas for pieces and reviews by interesting acts just outside our general spheres of knowledge, many in the worlds of dance or club culture. Come in, I told him, and soon he proved one of our very best writers, also writing lots for our neighbours next door at Mixmag magazine, and later The Wire, The Guardian, and many other titles. This book is full of great interviews with the likes of Dubmaster Dennis Bovell, Scream, Rinse FM, Sarah Lockhart, Producer Youth, and many more, tracing the journey of heavy bass, it's all about that bass, through reggae, rave, grime, dubstep, and so many other genres. The sound system acts like a sort of centrifugal force in these stories. So many people dancing around its heart, so many people being kept together in its rhythms. Great photography by Brian David Stevens too also makes this a gorgeous book to pour over. It came out in 2019, just before the bass went quiet, but now it thunders again, thank goodness, and is published by Strange Attractor Press. And now let's get on with this episode. I'm your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, published by White Rabbit Books, of course. My guest today is a journalist, editor and writer who started writing at The Face and Jockey Slut in the 1990s, writing about club music and lots of other music, I should say. She also went on to become a DJ on Worldwide FM, do brilliant youth work and set up the shelter charity's brilliant magazine home, for which I did one of my favourite ever jobs, interviewing Jarvis Cocker about all the houses he'd ever lived in. In 2019, she set up her own publisher, Sweet Machine, publishing Make Some Space, Tuning Into Total Refreshment Centre, a book about the ad hoc inspirational venue, uh, which was in Mojo Magazine's top 10 books of the year. Document Your Culture followed, a pamphlet arguing for the preservation of grassroots venues and other creative spaces. And now in March 2023 comes Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor, published by Faber a book delving deep into how dancing impacts, influences and gives real character to our lives. My guest today is Emma Warren. Welcome, Emma. How are you doing? I'm very well, Jude. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, tell me about those early days of yours as a journalist. Um, I was a teenager in the 90s and I was the person who would, you know, rip up all the uh, pages of the face and put them over my wall and, um, you know... It's funny, the non-Britpop side of the 1990s is still so less well-documented. What was exciting about that decade to you? Well, um, I suppose what I'd say is, hmm, it's a big question, isn't it? Yeah. Because that that covers a long time. 
Um, I suppose I'd already got a couple of years on the dance floor under my belt by that point. Um, I was in my kind of late teens by the early part of the decade. And um, I think I was kind of in the process of really becoming embedded in the dance floor, um, embedded in the cultures that surrounded it. And I knew that I wanted to do something to contribute because around me, people were taking the signal that kind of comes with that sort of dancing communally on culturally powerful dance floors. And they were becoming DJs or graphic designers, making flyers and just generally like having a task. Mm. And uh, I definitely wanted a task (laughs) as well. And so I kind of began writing um, initially just kind of in my bedroom um, and then for a student publication, and then my friend started Jockey Slut magazine. So the very first kind of proper thing I did, well, it's all proper, isn't it? But yeah, the first of kind of like um, published thing that I did was the back page Q&A with Elton, who ran the door at Most Excellent, which was the, the kind of back page of the very first issue of Jockey Slut. Fantastic. And yeah, that interest in the people, you know, around the edges of the dance floor, as well as the people, you know, DJing is something that is, runs through your work as well. Um, who've been your favourite interviewees? This is a really awful question, I know, and one I never know how to answer. <laughs> it is it's a hard question because obviously, you know, over the years I've spoken to a lot of people. But I think the thing that comes to mind, given that we were just talking about Jockey Slut, is that I kind of took it upon myself to um, do something within the magazine called Heroes of House. So this was in, you know, I think Jockey Slut started in about 94. So between about, yeah, in those kind of like mid to late 90s years, I did the Heroes of House column in Jockey Slut, which at that point was finding the people from the deep and distant past of like <laughs> 1986 or whenever, um, and to interview them. So I interviewed a whole load of people who were really key from that time, Kevin Saunderson, Romanthony, who like, that was a um, quite a rare one because he didn't really do interviews. Kevin Saunderson, Marshall Jefferson, um, uh, Glenn Underground, you know, like all sorts of people who... I mean, Glenn Underground was kind of new at that point, but even at that point, I think I was interested in like finding Lil Lewis, all sorts. Yeah. Um, and again, it's a time where to find someone, you have to kind of, you know, you have to go to Eastern Block, look at a record, find a phone number for the label, call the label, <laughs> try and organise your interview. Um, and it was just a real pleasure to talk to those people. Mm. Todd Terry, yeah. um, who actually I interviewed in a hotel when he was like DJing somewhere in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really like completely gorgeous for me because I loved house music and I loved Chicago house music and I loved everything about it and just to meet the people whose records I've been buying when I was like you know in my early 20s and very much on the dance floor was just totally gorgeous. And people who you know they're not people who obviously are singing or presenting themselves as the big characters of this scene necessarily maybe Kevin Saunson was kind of a bigger character in that sense maybe Marshall Jefferson as well actually. The process of finding these people is very exciting I'm sure you know um God, I remember, when was it? I think, yeah, it was the 30-year anniversary of Jack Your Body. I did a big piece about it and interviewed um, Steve Silkerley, um and Cheryl Garrett, who'd um, been one of the early journalists out there writing about um, what was going on in the States with Jack music, as you know it was. And just really exciting and um, to get access to that scene when you're a writer and make those connections. It's yes. wonderful, isn't it? It is. It's like, what you know, what a pleasure and a privilege yeah. To, you know, if you love something, to have that kind of proximity. And I know that you'll know that as well, won't you, with all the amazing people that you've uh, been able to spend time with. Yeah, no, it's it's really wonderful. 
Um, so tell me about your book, Dance Your Way Home. It's great. Um, I really love how it starts by telling the reader that everyone who's ever danced is a dancer. What a great way to begin it. Why was it important to start it that way to you? Because it's true. <laughs> because it's true. If you dance, you're a dancer. And um, I feel like we've sort of, in, in this country in particular, if you say to someone, oh, do you dance? That implies a question of skill and technique and maybe even training. And so most people would say, oh, no, 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 no. Even if they've done you know, a lot of dancing. Mm. And so one of the things that I definitely wanted to do um, was to make that really clear. Like from my point of view, if you dance, you're a dancer. And I also read a very cool book about, um, by, it's called The Choreographer's Handbook, and it's for choreographers. And it, it mentioned in there that if you're choreographing a dance, you need to make sure that the people who are watching your piece um, understand your intention very, very quickly. Otherwise, they're going to be worried for you and a bit embarrassed, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? How's this going to be? <laughs> and so I just thought, oh, I'm writing a book about dancing. I'm going to take something from a choreographer and I'm going to make sure that my readers from the very beginning feel confident and happy and with me and encouraged right from the very beginning. So, uh, yeah, I, I took a little bit of choreography advice and applied it to my opening sentence. And you talk at the beginning about you when you were young, first dancing, you know, in front of the Top of the Pops and stuff, and exploring the kinosphere. People call it all sorts of different things. <laughs> but I just say Laban. So um, tell us about that, the kinosphere that Rudolf Laban um, talks about. You know, this is about exploring the space around your body, you know, through dance. My understanding of the kinosphere is it describes the kind of area you can reach when you extend your limbs. So, you know, we're sitting here together around this table. If I, like, stretch my arms <laughs> out, I'm exp- that's the edge of the kinosphere for me. If I move to the side, you know, my kinosphere ex- extends that way and I can extend it up. If I don't use my body very much and if I'm, you know, my arms are closer in and my legs are closer in, then my kinosphere becomes smaller. Yeah. She's doing all this, by the way, everybody listening. <laughs> I'll start doing YMCA over here or something, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's my understanding of it. But there are other people who could explain that much better than I you know I'm not a dance academic in any shape or form but you have a lot of you know writing about um academic writing about dance in this but you know putting it across in such an accessible way and you know just you really get across the liberating sort of energies of dancing um I love this um you write that dance is unstoppable expression each gesture flex slide or shape we make in response to music contains communication and history um, had you ever thought hard about your own life in dancing before you wrote this book? Well, I think I'm probably the sort of person that does a lot of uh, thinking on the dance floor. <laughs> um, you know, some of us are just like that. And I also do a lot of noticing. Um, I, I'm a, a kind of noticer. I like to be in a moment and then I like to, you know, it's not something I'm doing intentionally. I'll just kind of like mm, step out of it. Oh, look what's happening over here. Or noticing other people, how they're moving and what's happening when they're moving. So I think I'd always I'd always done that to a certain extent. The, the degree to which I could remember what it felt like to move on certain dance floors or the, the uh, visual memories that I had mm. of people moving on the dance floor tells me that I absorbed a lot and thought a lot about it at the time. But obviously in the process of, the, of writing this book, I had the chance to deepen all of that and, and kind of really draw down everything that I'd ever half thought or a quarter thought or a, you know, 0.5% thought <laughs> and like spend loads of time with that tiny 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 grain of thought until I could make it really big yeah um and then kind of join it with all these other tiny 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 half thoughts that I'd had because yeah. we're not really encouraged to think about the way we move our bodies are no we? no I mean I'm talking when I say we I'm talking about a kind of particular type of 
Englishness or Britishness. Yeah. We're not often encouraged yeah. to think about these things because they're not deemed important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of the thinking, a lot. Of, I think the reason why uh, people seem to be responding well to it is because this is just stuff that is actually very common and very ordinary. We've not often been encouraged to spend, you know, a long period of time thinking about it and um, sort of bring some of these things to the surface. Your book made me think about how dance could be really transformative um, and that it can transform the way we think about music and um, respond to music we love or, you know, respond to new music. You know, I write in my book about falling in love with movement when I saw Kraftwerk at Tribal Gathering in 1997 and I really wanted to have a chapter in my book where... You know, I, I loved craft work, but they listened to them at home. I didn't go to dance clubs because they were scary. You know, I lived in Swansea and it, the dance clubs were escaping this big super club in the mid 90s. And the girls that bullied me at school would go there. You know, this is idea. It wasn't for me. But that night at Tribal Gathering, and it was all about the dancing, craft work, followed by Orbital, followed by Daft Punk. And I was found at 8.30 in the morning, this is absolutely true, dancing on my own to Fabian Groove Rider when everybody wanted to get the bus home. And all I'd ingested were a few beers and egg butty and a few stolen a few fags. That was it. But it was just the endorphin rush I was having. Um, what have been your most thrilling personal experiences of dancing? Hmm. And again, it's almost impossible to pull out one moment because it's a continuum and it's a, it's a each of the dance floors that I've been... Um, contain gestural information, sonic information, cultural information from the dance floors yeah, I've been on before. Yeah. So the thing isn't so much the one moment, the thing is the repetition. Right. And the repetition right. happens kind of in the moment when you're moving and you're kind of repeating a movement, which is very um, soothing and calming and and relationship building. Um, but it also happens on a week-by-week -week basis during the mm. times when I've been lucky enough to be somewhere when things are happening. So it's ritualistic. It? Well, I don't know about in ritualistic. A little, a little, you know, in the sense it's you're, doing it every, you're doing it regularly. It's repetition. Yeah. It's, it's repetition and the, the building of it that happens um, sometimes week by week, uh, sometimes over the long span of a kind of like life doing these sorts of things. And then it's also the bigger thing of all the people who came before and all the dancers who will follow us. Right. Um, when I say dancers, again, I'm just talking about the people who are generous enough to kind of, you know, share how the music makes them move mm. and not just feel. Yeah. Um, because it is generous to move. You're always leaking information about yourself when you move. I love the Malcolm Rifkin um, quote you use in the book about... Um, you know, looking at, you know, how cracking down on this kind of dance, it could um, affect entirely innocent events like a barn dance. <laughs> I think that one, actually, I think I first came across that in one of Richard King's books. Maybe it was in um, Lark Ascending. I think he... Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, yeah. I think he... It's possible that I first came across that there. Um, because I think there's a, there's quite a lot in that book, isn't there, about... Um, it, like Castle Morton. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So um, it's, you the know. Free festival there. I'm always grateful to the people who kind of like find these things in the archive <laughs> and then like present them out to the world so that the the rest of us can benefit from them. Because that was in one of the um, boxes of archival papers that was released, uh, I don't know, whenever, at some point. So yeah, gratitude to A, the archivists, <laughs> and also B, the people who dig into the archives to find the things yeah. that we need. I also loved... Um, I hadn't come across this before the um, um, the story about Morgan Bullock, the um, dancing this this woman, Morgan female, right? Yeah, so a, a girl who was became a TikTok sensation doing Irish dancing to Megan the Stallion. Um, before we talk about today's book, um, 
there's just one one last question I wanted to ask you. You know, the gigs I go to a lot, not many people dance at gigs anymore, especially in big cities, I find. What's gone wrong? Ah, well, I think there is still plenty of dancing happening in certain places. Um, I was supposed to go to this Ama Piano night um, with my friend towards the end of the year, but I'd injured my knee dancing, (laughs) annoyingly. And so I was on crutches and I couldn't go. But he sent me some video afterwards and there was definitely a lot of dancing happening there, for sure. Um, I think it's a sort of indie world thing. You know, know, a lot of the gigs I go to today, you know, kind of sit down, folk or traditional, um, or you know, not dancing gigs, but kind of, you know, when I go to festivals, when I go to music festivals, there's this kind of self-consciousness about people I see more. You know, not always, but it kind of makes me upset because I want to be the one dancing. I, I just dance anyway. Well, this is the thing. Well, the first person who dances is doing, again, a very generous thing because they're encouraging other people to dance there. You know, it's, it's like permission giving. Mm. I'm happiest just, you know, jumping about a room to northern soul i love it you know we write about northern soul in the book as well so much great stuff anyway it's a great book everybody it's out soon get it it's fantastic um head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the acclaimed movie all of us strangers starring paul muscal and andrew scott Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, um, I'm going to ask you the three questions I ask all my guests. Um, can you tell me about the first music you loved? What was it? Well, it took me a while to work out what I thought about this question. Yeah. Because originally I thought, oh, I just really love Prince. I had like a poster <laughs> on my wall and I love Prince. And me and my friend Alicia at school, we loved Prince. And, and people criticised us for it. Whatever. And then I thought, well, that's not really actually the, the truth. The first kind of music I really loved was the Kids from Fame and the, yes. Kids, from Fame, the Kids from Fame soundtrack. Oh, yeah. The first seven I ever had was Irene Cara um, and then the um, the album and all, all of it. I just completely loved Fame. And, and the reason why I would say it's the first music I loved is because it made me do something. Mm. I didn't just love it passively. I didn't just like love it and go say to myself, oh, I love it or, um, you know, just buy it or ask it for it for Christmas. I did something with it, which was that me and my friends, Julia and Gemma, who lived uh, sort of on parallel roads to me, we started Fame Club in my back Mm. garden. Um, We made a little sign and we would meet at Fame Club and one of us had a cassette and one of us had like, you know, a kind of um, like little music playout system. And we'd kind of go and, you know, make up dances and make up songs and make Mm. up alternative storylines and just kind of like, you know, pretend we were Leroy and Doris and Coco <laughs> oh, Leroy, who were our favorite oh, characters and um and so I loved it because it made me do something and yeah. I think that process that kind of relationship between 
like um, listening and loving something and doing something is really important. Um, who was the first music writer you loved? Mm, well, I didn't really read much. I, I couldn't have I couldn't have named any music writers. Certainly in the early days of buying magazines, I was starting to I started to buy ID from about the age of sixteen and, and Record Mirror really for the club sections because mm. you know there were so many things I couldn't go to, but if I couldn't go to them, I still wanted to know about yeah. them. So I kind of like read the club listings time out as well. I kind of read them like you might read poetry or something <laughs> if you were like into poetry. Um, but I didn't really no names. I didn't really understand any about how it worked, so I didn't really have any names. But then when I moved to Manchester. I became aware of a writer called Mandy James, who was like a proper journalist. And she, you know, she was in the clubs. I would see her all the time. She was kind of part of the, you know, community of people that were making things. Uh, And she was a proper, you could see her name in magazines if you went into the newsagent. And, um, and uh, she approached me one day when we were out and just was just like in the toilets at the boardwalk. And she just said, I like your writing, you could do this if you wanted to. And wow. it was just such an incredible moment of encouragement because I didn't know that. And the fact that she gave me, she, Mandy James, <laughs> gave me some permission that she'd mm. noticed and wanted to let me know that I could too was really powerful. Mm. It was powerful then. And the more I think back about it, I just think, God, that's so amazing. Yeah. But you've done a lot of work with young people, you know, on um, journalism projects, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, it's a very powerful thing you know one day many years ago a teenager from Cornwall came up to London I had a cup of tea with her and that's Laura Snipes who's my editor of the Guardian now yeah I think kind of um you know passing on that you know you can do it and it's a really really important thing exactly because I received it I absolutely intend to pass it on and continue passing it on and and the people I've passed it on to will also pass it on so that's just how it works isn't it yeah definitely Um, and what was the first music book you loved that would have to be Reggae Bloodlines a uh, full title is um, Reggae Bloodlines in Search of the Music and Culture of Jamaica, made by Stephen Davis and Peter Simon, published in 1977. Um, they were Rolling Stone writers and they loved reggae music and they went to Jamaica and spent a good amount of time on the island um, interviewing key people, musicians, also um, politicians, Michael Manley, and other kind of cultural figures um, and taking portrait photographs both of of like the artists and the musicians but also of kind of Jamaica at the time um, I recognise now um, in a way that I wouldn't have done at the time the the fact that they as white Rolling Stone writers coming onto the island regardless of how much they loved reggae affected what they did and, and is now um, means that we need to see it in a, in a particular way um, this wasn't people necessarily telling their own story although actually much like Joe Muggs's book it was a case of people going in to talk to the people yeah. who have did the thing and then report Let them tell their story. Yeah. Um, but I first came across it and I can see it very clearly in my head in Manchester Poly where I studied, uh, became Manchester Met as I was leaving. Um, there was this tiny little music section in the library, like really sort of two, just like maybe two shelves. And I remember, and they were right at the bottom as well, so you had to sit on the floor to actually <laughs> see what was on there. And I remember looking and finding this book, No Dust Jacket, Reggae Bloodlines, pulling it out and just being like, oh my God, this is, oh my God, this is such, there's a whole world included in the pages of this book. Mm. So I took it out and then I kept on, <laughs> I kept on like renewing it for 18 months. <laughs> Brilliant. To the point where I was having these moral dilemmas like, oh my God, like, I love this book and I need to keep on looking at it. But some, I'm, I'm now denying it 
to anybody else. So eventually I kind of took it back, like, because it was out of print at that point. You couldn't yeah. get it. And those were the days you just couldn't go on the internet, obviously, and kind no, of like no, try no. and find an old copy. There was in an some internet but, bookshop. <laughs> there was an internet, but there was just Grand Royal on it, and that was it. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, eventually I did manage to get myself a copy, which, like, again, I loved and held on to for a long time, but then I kind of gave it to someone in a kind of like a grand gesture of like this means so much to me but you can have it got another copy that one also went I had another copy (laughs) which very recently I lent to the incredible um, Junie uh, DJ Junie Junie Reed um, from Nzinga Sound who is like one of the most incredible like sound system women uh, does some radio shows and plays out frequently so it's very very worth catching if you can Uh, yeah but she's currently got my Oh, great. My current copy of Reggae Bloodlines. I love the fact you're passing all these things on again. There's a theme coming <laughs> But here. I receive, you know, if you receive, you have to give, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, let's talk about today's book. Mm. This is one you've brought to me. And I've just seen it for the first time today, which is a first for this podcast. But at the time of recording, it's out of print. Um, it's been reprinted later in 2023. And it's All Crews, um, Journeys Through Jungle, Drum and Bass Culture by Brian Bell Fortune. Um, it was originally self-published under the name All Crew Must Up in 1999 before going out of print quickly because it just sold out. It became cult reading. Um, it includes over 10 years of interviews with artists from Jungle and Drum and Bass, plus it explores the record labels, pirate stations, promoters and ravers in those scenes. So how did you come across this, Emma? How did I come across it? Um, I think I came across it just uh, in the ether. I was aware of it. Um, and finally managed to get myself a copy, not um, the first one, which was, like you say, literally made, photocopied, ring bound and taken to yes, record shops and bookshops. Spiral bound, love that. Spiral yeah. bound, yeah. yeah, spiral bound. Um, not that one. Or even, I don't think, even version two, I ended up with like the third one, um, which is the one you have in front of you. It's got a great cover, yeah. two guys dancing on the front. Yeah, which is, and it's a real labour of love told from the inside. Um, Brian is a brilliant writer and a brilliant observer and a brilliant documenter um, of the whole of the whole kind of entirety. So he was kind of going out dancing to like rare groove jazz in the kind of mid 80s. And then so he he'd already had, you know, quite a long time on the dance floor before he encountered Acid House and was like, what the hell? (laughs) But was intrigued and kind of found his way into into that and then kind of stayed until it began to evolve into hardcore and then on into jungle. So he's got that that kind of first person in the middle of it perspective, but also he's able to do that kind of zooming in and out of the experience where he can describe amazingly the context and what it was like, bringing some of his own personal experience in it as well. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's a mixture of um, interviews with people, um, and, and his kind of observations about what was happening that kind of thread it all the way through and photography. Um, and it's brilliant. And it and it, it's brilliant for lots of reasons, but not least because it was made in the spirit of all the other things that were happening in the time. Mm. Um, some people put on clubs, some people made tunes, some people DJed. Brian made a book. Yeah. And just going through it um, today and looking at the way it's formatted and these great photographs as well and the great design by um, Nadine Gar, who kind of helped him put it together in the first place. Um, it's all kind of quite little choppy sections going through time. Um, you know, little they're not even chapter headings. It's like almost just like little glimpses um, in different parts of um, you know, what's going on. Producers, dub plate pressure. Labels, majors, record shops, raves, promoters, booking agents, you know, all sides of, you know, what's going on in this kind of um, creativity. 
Um, you know, um, Brian Belfortune, you know, kind of, um, you know, did um, the first national jungle program from BBC Radio One, and saying here, and you know, he's done stuff on Channel Four and MTV, specialising in underground youth culture. Um, this edition we got here, uh, you got all this, and at the end you have Brian is an intensive care nurse at Great Ormond Street Hospital for children and lives in Tottenham. You know, which you know, and that's. I find sometimes people think, oh, if you write about music, you know, that's your job and that's what you do. But loads of people, you know, it's part of their life. And, you know, they have, you know, <laughs> quote unquote, real jobs or kind of do very different things. And it reminds you the people in these scenes, you know, this is just one part of, you know, one part of the rich tapestry of everything else that they do. Um, I wanted to talk to you about um, the self-publishing of it as well. Um yeah, so it took him a while to get it out, and I was looking at, um, at the site for all crews, and this is um, what I found there. So he'd written it over 18 months, shopped it around. No one was interested. Um, when he visited one publisher to retrieve the manuscript, he was sent to the basement because the receptionist thought he was a courier. Um, yeah. Um, so he worked with um, Nadine Gar, as I said, to self-publish it. They photocopied it, spiral-bound it, took copies on bookshops and record shops, and then the word of mouth started building. Um he also says on the site about how the drum and bass DJ Storm, you know, from chemistry, well, the deal known as well from chemistry and Storm and Goldie were early fans. Great picture of Goldie looking about 12 in here as well. Um, so, you know, that story of self-publishing is both maddening, but it's also incredibly inspiring. Um, you know, um, you've self-published too. The last, um, you know, two books that you've done were through, as I said earlier, your own um, publisher kind of um, sweet machine. Um I often forget that I started. Yeah, as exactly. A writer. Smoke, so Jude, a London peculiar, particular. Yeah, is that, yeah. Is that what it was? A little fanzine I did. Was it a peculiar or a particular? It was a peculiar. Ah. That was my co-ed to Matt's idea because London peculiar is a thing, but I was more by the peculiar size of London. But, you know, it was done on, you know, a basic Microsoft program printed by proper printers. But I remember saving 50 quid a month for six months and Matt did the same so we could afford to get it published with a bit of red on the cover as well as the black and white. And that took a lot to do that um, in my early 20s. But, um, you know, we ended up selling 5,000 copies an issue, which is nuts, you know. Um, but um, just there's something really exciting about the fact that, you know, he did this. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about that in relation to what you've done as a writer, you know, setting up um, your own um, publisher too. You know, tell us about you know, what you think self-publishing can give people? Because it could kind of be looked down on sometimes. Oh, yeah, so much stigma about it. So much. I mean, I consider it, I just think I set up an independent publisher. Yeah. You know, everything starts somewhere, doesn't it? Like all these books we've got on the table, you know, books by Faber, books by Orion, books by White Rabbit, whatever. They all start somewhere, don't they, with yeah. a person doing a thing. Yeah. Um, and in Brian's book, he talks about how he knew someone who'd made a poetry collection and they just like, you know, made the poetry collection and printed it and sold it. And he was like, oh, OK, I can do that. So I think every time you make something, you send out a signal to other people that oh, you can make something. Mm. Um, and I definitely picked up that signal as well. I think um, I kind of had a little half thought in my head that I would um, do my book like as if I was taking white labels around record shops. <laughs> um, and so in a way that also gave me a little bit of a, a kind of cloak or a bit of confidence to do it because it's like a bit of an embarrassing and weird thing to go to a, into a shop, particularly as like a middle-aged woman and say, oh, can I talk to the person who buys books? I've made, here's a book I've made. Because you know that all their alarm bells are going off, like who's yeah. this weirdo <laughs> yeah. and why are they here and how quickly can I get rid of them? And on a number of occasions, people would look at Make Some Space and go, oh, this looks really good. Uh, oh, uh, 
shocked, surprised. They, they couldn't yeah. compute the difference between what they anticipated from me and what I was giving them because everything about me told them that it was just going to be rubbish, just some like weird nonsense. But almost you need one person to say yes. Like We had a great guy at, fo- at um, Foils who just said, yeah, I'll take 40 and see, you know, sale or return. But yeah, I think we should shift these. I'll put them on the counter. And as soon as Foils are sold 14 a week, it was like, oh, then you could tell somebody else, well, Foils have done this and then all rough trade in Neil's yard had sold it, you know. And, but it's getting past that initial. It's you know. hard. It's hard. But obviously also, Brian to... had, Brian obviously had other issues going on as well. You know, that story about, you know, being sent to the basement. You know, there was other things going on in the mix there. There was racism going on and other factors. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a whole thread that sits around everything that we're talking about. Sits around my book, sits around what well, sits around everything. Um, and I think that, um, what do I think about that? Well, I've got loads of thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got too many thoughts about that for one sentence uh, or one podcast or one lifetime, <laughs> no doubt. So tell um, the listeners what are the great things about this book. You know, what kind of why should we seek it out? Why should we get it when it's coming out again later this year? Well, you've just passed it back to me so that I can um, read out the first line, which is, don't know how I came to be buying a ticket for a rave at the back of a shoe shop in Islington. <laughs> You're immediately there. So there's just, and his book is absolutely full of moments like that. So you've got him kind of taking you with him yeah. through all these places. You've got him describing kind of going to a rave. Uh, this is like pre-jungle times. Going to a rave and feeling out of place and not sh- not being sure if he should be there and, and questioning this, this kind of concept of belonging yeah. there and then encountering someone at the door, taking his, well, it's not a door because it's a field, but like at the whatever, cobbled together table, saying, um, if you're here, you belong. Yeah. And him also having a realisation the next day at work you know, on the intensive care ward when some of the nurses were looking at the tabloids about, you know, acid house and evil raves and realising, and I think the line says, I realised I had become an outsider. Mm. So... What I love about his work is the kind of brilliant descriptions, the generosity of all the different voices that he brings in, and then the kind of um, the the way in which he's able to like articulate that interior experience that we have when we are involved with music and culture, and the and the fact that um, the fact that. This is happening all around you as well. Just you know, flicking through it just now, just seeing all the names of places like Wood Green Library. I was like, I know where that you know and. How this, you know, music is surrounding you all the time, you know, especially in a city, you know, especially in a city like London. Kind of nearest city to me is Bristol. You know, it's the same. It's just, it's, you know, you have a kind of awareness of this happening just from things you're hearing and posters you're seeing. If even if you're not in this, you know, so I say in the scene. I hate the idea of a scene, you know, because it's it's just like a a world that you can have access to. You know, a world that is quite welcoming by the sound of the book, this book, you know, the, the, world he, the world he was talking about was quite welcoming to him and welcome to lots of different people. I mean, definitely some of the situations he's describing in here are like, what I would say is not a beginner's situation. Right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And also um, certainly looking from the outside, not safe, but very, 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 very safe in terms of creating an environment in which people could dance out whatever they needed to dance out. Mm. And there's a brilliant quote in here that Brian got from a guy called Sting who ran the telepathy raves, where Sting says something like, we'd see someone come in and think, boy, he's going to be trouble. And then we'd see the same man leaving, skipping. Mm. And I just find that so mm. powerful. And I actually find it very moving. The idea of like, you know, young men, young women, young people 
carrying a heavy load and being able to go into an environment that matched the intensity of their experiences and to dance it out, to leave skipping, you know. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. I've said, I don't know why I've said gorgeous a lot. I've said gorgeous about three times. <laughs> I'm not going to say it anymore. It is but gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's a really um, very, very heartening, soulful and warm thing. And um, yeah, I just love this book. I bet you've had experiences like that too. You know, I'm instantly reminded of after the you know the, the year of uh, the so the year of COVID, the first year of COVID um, in the September of 2020, mid September, just before everything started kicking off again. I went to Avebury for the weekend with three female friends, and we had a house, um, and we just you know it was a house um, in a terrace, but the houses either side were obviously empty. Oh, we just put lots of Northern Soul on. And my friend Jess is a great Northern Soul dancer. She says she isn't, but she is. And and it's not because she was there showing off. We were just all, she was teaching us steps. And it was it just at the end of the night, we were all crying because it was just like, well, I, I, you know, I, I might have had a few glasses of wine. But it was just one of those amazingly, like, lovely experiences because we were all together and we were not thinking about, you know, the various things that we'd gone through in the year. One of my friends had worked for the NHS, you know, in very tough circumstances and all we'd all had different things going on as everybody did during that time but being just four of us dancing music we loved in a room just was like just thinking about it now I just want to like <laughs> I am I'm stretching my arms out you're now. exploring the kinosphere I am exploring the kinosphere um but um yeah kind of from the little bits extracts I've found online just the writing in this book is just so mm alive and you know you're in the present tense with Brian yeah I'm just very intrigued to see what the new version of it will be like and also I love the fact that the book keeps on changing yeah. you know it is it's not you know obviously it's being updated but it's kind of like it's in that spirit of the version and he's making the version next which he will need to make so the new version that comes out um when it comes out it will reflect where he's at now and where things are at now and uh, yeah I just can't wait to for it to be back out in the world again. Yeah, so the last um, version was out in 2014. Um, and yeah, hopefully the next one will be. It's, it's said it's coming out later this year, but we will we will wait for it. Um, I also love as somebody who was a teenager in the 90s, finding out about this side of the 90s in such detail and, you know, in, in such, it's, it's so accessible for people who might be a little... You know, might you know they'll know the, the Metalheads records or, the, you know, they'll know kind of um, certain big names, but they will not have encountered the music as a dancer, as a um, as a gig goer in any great detail, you know, maybe just as a, a listener at home or whatever. Um, and it strikes me that, you know, when the, you know, rewriting of history goes on, you know, still we have this narrative of the 90s being, you know, Blur versus Oasis a lot of the time, which is quite depressing. But, um, you know, kind of, um, how do you feel we kind of fight against that with, you know, the 90s were amazing, you know, I love the fact that I could be into pulp, but um, I was as into tricky <laughs> as I was into, you know, pulp. Um, that's not really told in the in the mainstream, is it? About you know this kind of culture. Well, I just think oh, the past is the past is gone, but we have now, and there are things happening now that people in the future will want to know about. Mm. So tell the story now, tell it well, tell it from the grassroots, tell it from the community, tell the stories that you know whoever the mainstream the gatekeepers whatever aren't that interested in and just make it happen and that comes back to the idea of of DIY of independent publishing of making things of, of documenting culture and just encouraging people 
to just do it if in whatever way possible, you know, spiral bound. Yeah. <laughs> and look where look where that has led. You know, I yeah. think also about uh, Carl Catamol's prison um uh, an insider's guide. Similarly, photocopy pieces of paper sold I think initially just at one rough trade and then ended up being a kind of best-selling penguin book. Mm. Um, so just do it. Just do it. Oh, do you know and what? It really doesn't matter. Ten people can read it, or like uh, you know, one hundred and ten thousand people can read it. It doesn't matter. It just really matters to do it. Yeah. So, it, oh God, I just want to kind of you know do it all myself now. That's fantastic. <laughs> but what you've a, done some doing, you know. And that done would have, some doing. You've done some doing, and done you, it. you can do some more doing if you want. Yeah, maybe you will. Like, <laughs> well, I hope people listening will go and do as well. Thanks, Emma. Um, what fantastic. Um, what fantastic sounding book. I'm looking forward. You know, maybe I'll steal your copy or you can pass it to me and I'll look at it and then take care of it and pass it back to you. Journeys Through Jungle, Drum and Bass Culture, um, last published by Vision Publishing, but where, however it's published, however you find it. And Vision Publishing is the predecessor of the um, publisher Velocity. Right, fantastic. Put out, put out tons of really brilliant things, yeah, uh, including Harry from DIYs, Dreaming in Yellow, and all sorts of other things. Brilliant. So it, it's coming out on the same publisher, which just has a different name now, a new, a new life. Great. And if you find a spiral band one, you know, mm-hmm. hang on to it. Um, so um, to finish today, Emma, um, your recommendations for a few other music books that uh, we should find, a, we should dig out. Okay, one's a bit of a mean one because you can't get it. Because <laughs> it's called The Dance Floors of England by Robert Gallagher, a.k.a. Rob Gallagher. Uh, previously um, uh, of Galliano, but it's a poetry collection, um, and it's absolutely amazing. Ooh, you know, can I have a look at that? Of, yeah, you can. I'm steal, trying to steal it off you. You're holding <laughs> onto it tight. He, he just is... did. He did 200 copies, sold them through Bandcamp, which I think is a fantastic way to sell kind of music, print things in the merch oh, section. Okay. If you do a little audio book, then you suddenly you can join Bandcamp, which is that's nice. what I did. Um, but they're completely brilliant, um, and he's got a lifetime in the dance, you know, and his observations are just completely brilliant he's got like he's describing like fat man and shaka stringing up sound he's got he's got the kind of um the description of what it's like when all the sound is finished and you've just got nothing left but this gossamer sound um i've quoted him as well in the book about um he calls the dance floor england through the looking glass oh amazing oh just the it's just beautiful it's sort of marbled sort of um colours and the um and you know this sort of zini sort of film layout to it kind of feels quite um letterpress and cut up in some ways but yeah the hare and hounds mirror bowl bar rumber in dub um learning to dance yeah it's absolutely brilliant <laughs> so that's a bit of a mean one because you can't have it but well, not, not you can't have it <laughs> well, well, we actually, actually it. you can't have it but no, no one else can have it I'll either put it in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> um but the other one I, I would suggest is gettable and that's by christian adolfo a quick ting on afrobeats uh, slim nov- a slim volume uh, which tells the story of Afrobeats which is the first book to have been made on the subject of Afrobeats as opposed to yeah. Afrobeat um, and it kind of traces the, the way in which the music the kind of like West African origins and the kind of UK response to essentially sound system culture um, merged to con- to create Afrobeats it's a brilliant book it's quite a lot of got Christian it's got quite a lot of Christian in it as well um, he uses him, himself as a guide, so he talks about growing up, going to hall parties at you know either ends of the Victoria line, um, <laughs> and talks about going to the kind of uh, African Caribbean societies at university, the ACSs, and how important those were in developing Afrobeats. Um, he talks a lot about the dancers as well, and um, just these kind of interesting little sidelines of like um, in 1980s Germany there was this kind of form of Afrobeat called Burger High Life, which was made oh, by, yeah. yeah, exactly, like Ghanaians who'd moved to, or West Africans who'd moved to Germany mm. um, and encountered kind of like high-tech recording studios. Yeah. 
not that they weren't those in the other places, but but it, it took us a, a certain kind of glossy German lens. So it's a brilliant book. Came out um, last year, I think, on Jacaranda. And yeah, it's great. Christian Adolfo, a quick ting on Afrobeats. Fantastic. Yeah, Burger High Life. What is amazing? There's a uh, Radio 4 documentary series by Clark Peters, who I still know as, you know, the the you know, guy from The Wire, um, but he also um, wrote Five Guys Named Mo, brilliant, um, you know, writer and actor. But yeah, he did the section on Burger High Life. In a, it was a, it was kind of um, I have to get the title. It was like a history of black music in Europe. It was fantastic. If it's still on um, BBC Sounds, do check that out as well. We're full of recommendations today, um, and with that in mind, what's your book song? Okay, then my book song is a new thing that's just out by Mamoyo and Marissa Osu, um, on a label called Shabine, South London, Lewisham based. Um, it's called Earth Cries, uh, but Memoyo Belinda Jawi is a poet, a completely stunning, incredible poet. Marissa is a harpist and beat maker, oh, nice. so they make music together. But this one is um, uses words from Jean Binterbreeze. Um, oh yeah. So Earth Cries is a Jean Binterbreeze dub poem. Um, Belinda Mamoyo has kind of reworked it herself with oh, Marissa, the harpist beat maker, um, and it, it honours the first anniversary of Jean Binterbreeze's death. So there's many like many things kind of wrapped into it, but also it's just an absolutely gorgeous piece of music. Oh, amazing. Jean Binterbreeze, wonderful writer. That um, I interviewed Raymond Antrobus, brilliant poet, um, and he introduced me to her work. And yeah, she's fantastic. Oh, that's great. Something new. Great. That's wonderful. Yes, brand um, new. Thanks so much, Emma, for being my guest today. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> so interesting to talk about dance and, um, you know, kind of and this, um, in your book, but also thinking about communities around dance and music and DIY. Very inspiring stuff. Thanks so much for coming. Because the community is all we have, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, Emma's book, as I said, is out in March 2023, um, Dance Your Way Home. Um, do get it lots of other songbook episodes are up now for you to listen to on Apple Podcasts and obviously lots of other streaming services uh, please like and subscribe because it helps get us known gets more people listening gets our community growing um, yeah thanks very much and I'll see you next week this has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production presented and written by Jude Rogers music by David Holmes Episode producer Jake Alderson, editor Dan Jones. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.